0: Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I'm so excited that you're joining me today. I have a really fantastic interview for you with the great Josh Burson, uh, who, of course, is a researcher, consultant, thought leader in the HR and talent development space. Uh, He has nearly 800,000 followers on LinkedIn. So many of you probably follow him and read his articles and go and look to him for the latest trends in HR and talent development. And I do as well. And I'm especially excited, not just about this interview, but about the fact that he is going to be giving the opening keynote at the Talent Development Think Tank, which is the conference that I'm hosting with my friend Bennett Phillips on January 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Uh, if you've been following along, you know it's actually been rescheduled due to the wildfires in Sonoma. And uh, we're very grateful that we're able to keep Josh on the ticket along with Liz Weissman and the other keynote speakers and breakout speakers. And uh, we're really excited. He's still giving the opening keynote on January 22nd. I know he's going to be talking about all the latest trends and really defining the future of talent development and what things are going to look like in 2020. And then later that day, we're going to be doing some design thinking so you can really define the future of talent development and what it means to your own organization and take that back with you. Some real ideas and best practices. We're going to solve some real problems and really give you a great bang for your buck when you come to this. This is going to be the best event out there in the HR and talent development space. It's going to be one that everybody's talking about. So if you don't have tickets, head on over to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com. You don't want to miss Josh. You don't want to miss this event and all the great connections that are going to happen there. Uh, In addition to the knowledge, the learning, the upskilling, everything that's going to be happening. Josh is going to be talking about all things, the future of work. And in this interview, we talk about the future of work. We talk about where things are going. We talk about learning. We talk about technology, talent development, reskilling, upskilling, all the things that you are thinking about. I try to ask the questions that people want to know from him. And these things are changing all the time. He also gives a little preview of what he'll be talking about at the think tank. So without further ado, here is my interview with the great Josh Burson. If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world, and things are changing so fast, it's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank community as a central and safe place to access information, ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious, helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks and on to the episode. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Andy Storch. And I'm really excited that you're joining me today because I've got a conversation for you with the man, the myth, the legend, Josh Burson. (laughs) And Josh is a global research analyst, public speaker, industry analyst, and writer on the topics of corporate human resources, talent management, recruiting, leadership technology, and the intersection between work and life. He previously founded Burson & Associates, which was acquired by Deloitte and has recently launched the Burson Academy where he is the dean uh, and founder. Josh has a huge following on LinkedIn and Twitter and speaks at conferences around the world. And I'm really excited that he will be speaking at the upcoming Talent Development Think Tank on January 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Josh, welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat Podcast.
1: Thank you, Andy. Very excited to be here.
0: Yeah, really cool to have you on. Excited to have you uh, speaking at the conference coming up. I know a lot of people in the HR and talent development space know your name and, and follow some of your work as I do as well. And uh, we had a chance to finally meet in person a few weeks ago at the mm-hmm. LinkedIn Talent Connect Conference in Dallas and uh, just uh, spent some time talking and, and planning and thinking about the future and uh, I got to see your talk there. And I know that's something that's always in flux, always changing based on kind of what's going on in the world of HR, talent, technology, work, that kind of thing. So I, I'd love to get into some of your latest thinking on some of those things. Sure. But before we do, for those that are not really that familiar with you, maybe we could start with a little bit of your background and how you got to where we are
1: today. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a non-traditional path. I um, studied engineering in college and worked as an engineer for a couple of years in an oil company as a mechanical engineer and then doing project management. Uh, didn't like that, decided I was going to go back to school and become an academic, spent two years getting a master's degree in engineering, decided I didn't like that. (laughs) That was at Stanford. Left and went to work for IBM in the early 1980s and really got fascinated by the tech industry. It wasn't called that. It wasn't called that at the time. And spent 10 years at IBM in sales and product marketing. And then left there in, let's see, 10 years later, went to work for a software company, Sybase, worked in the database industry, For eight years, and then left Sybase, which was an incredibly interesting company, and went to work for a little e-learning company in 1998. And so I had never been—I never had any experience in training or HR, other than a consumer of, obviously, of all those things. And we started building the software to manage online learning way before the internet was really popular, to be honest. Actually, the internet wasn't really kind of out there quite yet. There wasn't much going on. And we ran out of money, sold the company to a bigger company called Digital Think, which was a very successful dot-com, publicly traded, multi-billion dollar online learning company. And I was the head of product marketing and the head of product management there for about two years, a year and a half, and then got laid off during 9-11 went home and said, now what? (laughs) (laughs) And luckily I had had an experience working with IDC, the analyst firm at the time, and they were looking for somebody to do a research report on online learning. And having been, you know, sort of interested in doing research all my life, um, I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll do that. And since I have nothing else to do and there were no jobs, if you remember that particular point in time, So I started doing research and that's been what I've done for the last 20 years, turned into a great business selling research to corporations and HR departments. And then um, we sold it to Deloitte. I spent six and a half years at Deloitte as a partner doing all sorts of things, working on the human capital trends and then, you know, left Deloitte in May of 2018 and now I'm building out this academy. And so for 20 years, I've been an avid, analyst and researcher and consultant in HR and learned so much about what this is all about and constantly learning. And, you know, I feel like it's a never-ending, constantly changing area, as you guys know. The technology changes, the workplace changes, culture changes, consumer life changes, demographics change. And I now find myself almost spending half my time as an economist trying to figure out what's going on in the economy and why we have these issues at work because what happens to HR departments and L&D departments is they get, they get thrown into situations caused by workforce or workplace stress that the CEO or the head of HR says, we need a solution to X. And then they run around and trying to figure out what other companies have done. And it used to be that you could copy what GE did or you could copy what Pepsi did and you could be pretty sure that they were way ahead of the curve. And if you copied what they did, it would work for you. You can't do that anymore. It's all being invented independently by different companies. So it's a fascinating market, and I've really enjoyed it. And I think the fact that I had 20 years doing other things first gave me a, an outside-in perspective on, on all of the things we do inside HR. And so I have incredible respect for this domain and all the people in it. And I'm constantly trying to make sure we can help people be more and more relevant every day. So that's a long story. I don't know if you want <laughs> to have much history.
0: <laughs> no, it's, it's fantastic. And it's cool that you, you have so many different angles of it. You're not just like some cerebral academic who studies it at a university and, and gives some advice that way. You've worked in different capacities, You know, coming from engineering, getting the consulting and the technology experience, working, you know, running your own company, being within a large professional services firm like Deloitte. Doing so much of the research yourself and working with others, I'm curious. Before we get into the the learning trends and and working trends, from my own entrepreneurial perspective, you know, it didn't seem it seemed like you set out to run your own business, but you kind of ended up with that with your own consulting yeah. company. When Deloitte it was accidental, came, <laughs> accidental right, the accidental <laughs> entrepreneur. Yeah. When Deloitte came calling, I know you probably can't get into all that. We don't want to get into all the specifics of it, but was that something that was like? a relief or were you really hesitant to give up? Oh, it was a very,
1: it was a lot of soul searching. Yeah. For those of you that have run, you guys are going through this and many people listening to this, if you've tried to, if you ended up running a business, I think it was Peter Drucker who said, there's only one thing that makes businesses successful and that's having customers. Mm. So you spend all this time figuring out what people want to buy, solving their problems, listening to them, iterating, improving, dealing with competition, marketing, and then you start hiring people, and then you start hiring more people, and then, and then you have to keep the company profitable. And so we were at the point where when we were acquired, where we had about 75 people, and I was probably a little bit at my wit's end as a leader because I really like being an analyst. I'm not a professional CEO. I mean, I was reasonably good as a CEO, but I think I was better as an analyst. So I was constantly flipping between, you know, I was basically schizophrenic. One minute I'm running the company, the next minute I'm trying to talk to a client and write a research report. So it was really hard. And we were doing fine. We were profitable and we were growing. And when Deloitte came along, the opportunity they gave me, which is, you know, really it was a magical opportunity, was to take everything we had done in our own little company and leverage it to a global footprint all over the world that Deloitte could build consulting around. So I got pretty jazzed about it. And um, it was actually very hard to give up the day-to-day management role. You know, I sold it. But in retrospect, I needed it. And my wife pretty much said, you're doing this. (laughs) (laughs) She helped with the decision. Time for a change. Yeah. So it was a really good experience. And I learned a lot. I mean, Deloitte's an incredibly interesting, well-run company. And through the leaders there and the partners and the, the guy that bought the company was an amazing person the partner that sort of led the acquisition. So I mm. learned a lot at Deloitte, got a chance to travel around the world. And I think you know I think most entrepreneurs who are successful to some degree reach some point where they say, either I'm not capable of taking it to the next level or I don't want to take it to the next level or I'm ready to do something else with my life. And it's hard to get out of it. You know, I, like my brother-in-law runs a real estate business and he wants to retire, but he can't because he's got to find somebody to run it. So I feel it was very fortunate that it came along when it did for me. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's something a lot of people don't think about is that uh you know it takes different skills sometimes to get from one level to the next. That's why you see some of the most successful or you know famous startup founders who bring on professional managers like, you know, Sergey Bren, bringing on, I think it was Eric Schmidt, CEO at, at Google early on. Yeah. But you you touched on something that uh I want to ask about. So you mentioned This tough situation you were in of wanting to be a researcher, which is what you really enjoyed, and also having to be a professional manager with these people under you. And it reminds me that you know, as a talent development consultant myself, someone who goes out and speaks to a lot of clients and also interviews a lot of people on this show, I find I think the number one challenge in talent development working world is this idea that you know, earlier career uh, professionals get promoted because they're really good technicians, engineers, salespeople, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, they're managers. And they're being asked to oftentimes continue that job and manage people without really much management experience. Is that something that you're hearing a lot about seeing? And I'm curious what companies are doing about that.
1: Yeah. This is something I think about all the time. And I've done a lot of research on it. And it's particularly an issue now because there's so many young people in the workforce... That are ready for management roles and oftentimes being thrust into them or being held back because there's somebody older who's sitting in their way. So, there's a couple of things I think that there's maybe two or three things. First of all, becoming a people leader is a challenge for everybody who's ever done it, it's a developmental opportunity for people who get that opportunity. Some people are naturally good at it. My wife was an incredibly Good manager. She just has the personality for it. For me, it was a new experience. I mean, I had to lead people in other roles at other companies too. And I, I learned it over the years, and I'm still learning even now at the age of 63. I I have to think hard about how to deal with different situations all the time. So it's it's a journey. And when you go into it and become a leader, you have to think about it as a career change, not a job you aren't doing your old job and managing people. You're now in a new job, which is managing people and maybe some of the other stuff too. And I think you have to give yourself time and talk to other people and do a lot of listening and read a lot of books, the deep, deep, deep domain of what it takes to be a great leader. The second thing that I think is interesting is that we don't need the same kind of leaders that we did in the past. You know, in all of my early first 20 years of my career, the manager was the boss and they told you what to do they told you what not to do and they kind of put the box around your job for you that's true in some companies and some roles but it's less true than ever because more and more of the work environments are very agile and dynamic and the working people doing the jobs know way way more about the job than the manager and that's always been true but it's even more true now so If you think you're going to be micromanaging somebody working for you, A, it's a bad idea, B, it's a mistake. They're going to know more about the job than you are. So in some sense, now the job of a manager is to select people so they are in the right place and help them learn and improve and facilitate and solve problems on their own through connecting them to other people, developing them, giving them feedback. And sometimes they need direction too, but it's not the same boss in the corner office kind of a job. And that's also a different model for people. And so a lot of young people are looking for role models to teach them how to do that. And, you know, both of my kids, for example, are in their twenties, late twenties, and they're both constantly telling me, you know, I want my manager to teach me this, or how come my leader, you know, and I, and I feel sorry for their bosses (laughs) because they have a lot of expectation out of what they want out of their bosses. And that's really the way the workforce is today. So, and I think we're in a situation where many, many of us will be working for people younger than us. I spent almost seven years at Deloitte working for people 15 to 20 years younger than me who had none of the experiences that I'd had in my career. But they had a big job and they had a lot of responsibility and they knew a lot about Deloitte, which I didn't know. That was an interesting challenge for them and me. So there's a lot of new things going on in the space. I think if you find yourself... Caught between management and doing the work, make sure you're taking your managerial role seriously that's probably the most important part of your job if your organization is set up correctly
0: You mentioned in there this idea of you know younger employees being frustrated they want more guidance. I'm also hearing a lot and seeing you know I, I probably do more anecdotal research than you do with the, the harder research, but seeing that with the generational shift, something that the younger employees are wanting way more than maybe past generations is that to find career development. Knowing where they are going, what options they have, are, what skills are they going to be developing. And if they don't get that, they're going to start looking around. And of course, it's easier than ever to find a new job. And I feel like that's affecting turnover in a lot of places that are not investing or not giving employees that guidance. And yet, can also be frustrating to managers as well. Are you, are you seeing this as well?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, it's not new. It's always been true that people in early in their careers absolutely want to be developed and they want to know what to do next. It's heightened now and and it's particularly acute because it's so easy to find another job. You know, it used to be that if you change jobs every two years, you were labeled a job hopper and nobody would hire you. I mean, it's hard to believe that, but it was actually a stigma to change jobs. Now, you know, you've worked at five companies in 10 years. That's great. Oh, look at all the experience you have. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So it's pretty easy for somebody to say, I'm not going, I don't like my boss. I'm a little fed up with this company. I'm not getting to where I want to go. Hey, these guys keep calling me. I'm going to go work there. Because, you know, there's a lot of jobs. The unemployment rate is low, at least in big cities. So It's pretty important that the company, not just the managers, I don't think it's just the manager's job. The company and the HR function have to design an environment so that everybody can develop themselves and can find new opportunities. You can't throw that only on the manager anymore because the manager has a little bit less control than they think. If I'm working in a big company and I go to my manager and say, I'm sick of this, I want to do that. I'm asking my manager to go find me a job. They may or may not want to do that. They may not know how to do that. They may not have the connections to do that. If the HR department hasn't built a talent marketplace or a place for me to go and get a coach and help me find the next role, there's not much the manager can do. So I think it's, a, it's this problem for organizations and for managers, and it's on the top list. The talent mobility is very high on the list of almost every CHRO's agenda now is making that better and easier.
0: Yeah. And they've got to give managers guidance on how they can help their employees. And I think on the other side, one thing I've been talking to people a lot about, and I actually kind of created a new workshop on this because of the demand and spoke at a company about it recently, was how to take ownership of your career. The earlier career professionals, employees need to take more ownership of their own career and be able to come to a manager and say, this is what I want. I want to move over to finance. Can you help me do that? Instead Mm -hmm. of just waiting for them to give them the guidance or direction.
1: I think that's... Happening, I think young people now feel much more empowered and comfortable demanding what they want. And again, part of it's because we're in an economic cycle where they're, they have so much power. Uh, nobody wants to lose an employee right now. Now, if we have a recession, it's going to be a little bit different. Right. And people won't be quite as, you know, pushy. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting companies with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. We're also providing tons of great content on a weekly basis. In fact, we recently launched a great webinar series that has been going on weekly with content such as creating a culture of multipliers, gender equity. Liz Weissman's webinar on helping rid the world of bad bosses. We have a new webinar from Brent Snow on decision-making. We have a webinar on multipliers and how to use multipliers during troubled times, calming the storm. We have a webinar from our partner, Julie Winkle Giuliani on developing in place, how to continue your growth during remote working. And a webinar from Paul Middleton on the secret sauce for learning in the flow of work plus many more, just head to our website at advantageperformance.com. Click on free resources and you'll find the link to webinars and all of our other insights and resources there. Thanks for listening and now back to the show. We're kind of moving into this topic of the future of work. This is something that, you know, a lot of things you talk about when you speak in different places are, are kind of connected to this. A lot of people are trying to figure out what does this future of work look like? And of course, the world's always changing. One of the most important things is knowing the skills that are going to be important in the future because that's always changing. Jobs are changing. What skills do you think are going to be most important in the future of work, however you define that, five, 10 years down the road?
1: Well, let me let me make a few comments about the whole topic, okay. which I'm writing up for a thing that's coming out in January. Good timing. There's been a little bit too much writing about from people who are trying to define the future of work. You can't define it. Right. It's always been going on. When I got out of college in 1978 and I went to work for IBM in 1980, we had the office of the future. This was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It was called the office of the future. We're going to get rid of paper. There'll be no more paper. Okay. 40 years ago. I still have paper in my desk, I still have a printer. <laughs> Probably don't use it nearly as much as you used to, though. So the idea that you're going to suddenly, you're going to write a book on the future of work and you're going to read the competencies and say, okay, let's just do these, is kind of silly. It's constantly changing. So yes, we do know quite a bit about it, that the routine work is going away and the skills of the future are, and IBM just did a big report on this, are much more behavioral, communication, interpretive, pattern matching, collaboration, listening. They're very much more behavioral and emotional because, you know, typing information into Excel or typing information into a spreadsheet is being done by an RPA robot now. Even at McDonald's, I spent Four or five years as a McDonald's employee, and you know, I used to wait on customers and cook the hamburgers and make the milkshakes and clean the bathrooms and all that stuff. You go by a McDonald's today. I went by a McDonald's in an airport. There's basically a kiosk <laughs> doing all that stuff, and then there's a person handing you your food. Right. So that person has to sort of be nice to you, but they don't that's actually kind of a routine job too. Eventually the food will just come out of a little conveyor belt, probably with your name on it. So the jobs are becoming more higher level, they're also becoming more hybrid. I just wrote an article over the weekend called The Full Stack HR Professional about this idea of a full stack professional. In, in engineering, this idea there's this idea of a, of a full stack engineer that knows the hardware, the database, the operating system, the applications, the user experience, and all that stuff. All of our jobs are becoming like that, where you have to learn the adjacent domains to be successful, you can't only do email marketing. You need to know SEO and you need to know HTML and you need to know graphics, you need to know a little bit about analytics. So all of these jobs are becoming, you know, because they're augmented by technology, they're richer, more interesting, human-related roles. I don't think an HR department can sit down and figure all this out in a project. Rather, and I've had this meeting, I've had a lot of meetings on this. And there's people selling stuff along these lines, but I don't think it's going to be that successful. I think the future is creating an organization that dynamically figures this out on its own without you sitting around in a, in a conference room and trying to map out, well, we need these skills and not those skills. Now yes, you know, if you look at the jobs that are open, there's machine learning engineers, there's AI, there's chatbot trainers. There's these new jobs that have just been created out of the ether. They just kind of appeared out of nowhere. You know, some manager just thought them up. And then we went out and looked for people that knew how to do them without even knowing really what they were. Right. But that's not new. I mean, when I worked at IBM in 1980, we had steno pools typing memos, and then we got word processors, and then we got computers. And, you know, so I think the problem is not listing the skills but creating an environment where you can identify the skills and then go out and develop them and hire for them on an ongoing, regular basis. One of the things we've found that gets in the way and prevents companies from doing this is the job models and the job architectures of the past. You know, Many, many companies built hierarchical levels of jobs, and you know, first you're level one, then you're level two, and then it goes up to 62 levels. And so when a new job is created, you know, let's suppose we want to hire somebody to do something. All right, what level is it? Write the job description. What's the title? Are we going to use the title we already have? All of that gets in the way of creating a job. So I think we're going to end up with a much more dynamic, flattened job architecture. And we're doing a big project right now with a big company. We're helping them with their workday implementation. And they spent a year trying to take their old job model, their old job architecture and put it into the new system. And thank God they didn't do it because it would have just completely gotten them nowhere. We need to build a more dynamic sort of system-oriented talent environment so that we can create these jobs as needed. So that's all very challenging and that's kind of what's going on. But definitely there's a lot of data that shows that there are certain technical skills that are in high demand all the ai analytics algorithmic skills software engineering analytics but you know we just finished launching a big development program on people analytics and what we found is that people don't really need training on statistics or correlation i mean they they know that they got it in college they might go to a, a workshop or something and get a brush up course what they need to know is how to ask good questions identify the right problem diagnose solutions and then apply data In a scientific method, to a problem that people can use the result as opposed to running, you know, doing a big analysis. So the technical skills are important, but they don't stand alone. I like this idea of the T-shaped develop you guys, you know, the T-shaped career or the Mm T-shaped capability model, where you have deep skills in some areas, but you also are very broad in other areas. And that's those are the skills of the future, is lots of T's, lots of depth and breadth. And we all have to have both.
0: Yeah, I I like what you're talking about here. And I agree. I mean, obviously the future of work is always changing because there will always be a future. Work will always continue to change. And we have no idea what's going to exist (laughs) 20 years from now, just like 10 years ago, you couldn't have predicted that someone could have a full-time job as an Instagram manager creating stories on Instagram, right? You know, social media. Right,
1: exactly. Didn't exist. But that job got created in some company or in some person came up with it. Yeah. See, the other thing is we don't want to give managers guardrails so they actually create a job that's not a good job Mm. just because we thought it up in the conference room.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Especially if it's something that you don't have the specific skills to draw from. You really need someone that can develop those skills as we're building this, as it's something new. I also thought it was interesting, and I feel a little bit vindicated in this based on my own opinions, that you talked a lot about the importance of emotional skills and, you know, people, relational skills, and not as much about science and technology. When I feel like 5, 10 years ago, we heard all the time about STEM, 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 you know, get your kids
1: to, you know... Well, STEM is uh, still important, but I think what the research shows is that people are getting a lot of STEM education earlier in life. You know, my, my uh, nephew programmed computer games in high school. So he's in business school now. And, you know, you can throw a programming assignment at him and he'll figure it out. Yeah. But he doesn't know how to work with people yet. He doesn't know how to lead projects. He doesn't understand what organizations are like and why you have to talk to this person, versus that person. And, you know, And Those are the things you learn over time. Technical skills are always going to be valuable, but they're not complete.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was just assumed that... Obviously, we talk about computer programming and everything. I was just assume the computers will program themselves in the future. <laughs> and my kids are young. They're three and five. So by the time they're in the working world, I think the robots will just be running everything. But the most important skill will be that human relational, can you work with other people, right? Can you still sell, can you still build relationships? Can you get people to do
1: things? Yeah, and I, I don't think programs will ever conf- program themselves. but So there'll always be technical jobs too. Right. I think about it sometimes in terms of, of contract construction. The construction trade, I mean, there, people have been building things probably since the 1500s. Right. And there are carpenters, there are plumbers, there are electricians. They know a lot about their trade. They know the tools of their trade. They know what they don't know. They know where to go for help. They know how to solve complex problems that they haven't seen before. They know how to deal with their clients, usually. (laughs) Right. I mean, think if you look at all, those are not technical. They're technical in one sense, but they're more complex than that. And that's the way many, many jobs are becoming. So speaking of that, as jobs are changing, a couple of words that I've been hearing a lot
0: more lately, and I think you mentioned them in your talk that I, when I saw you in Dallas was upskilling and reskilling, Yeah, right? As yeah. jobs change, employees need new knowledge, need to be able to do jobs differently. Otherwise you're going to get left behind. A lot of my listeners to this podcast are in talent development, learning and development. You know, they want to help develop their people. How are companies approaching that? What's the best way to approach that now and, and prepare them for that?
1: Well, my new mantra is what I call the Capability Academy, which I've been writing about and it's starting to pick up speed. And the idea is, rather than think about your solution as a bunch of courses and programs, which is a part of the solution, think about it as a whole tapestry of developmental activities and programs around a set of capabilities. The best example in most companies is sales. Sometimes it's customer service. Sometimes it's supply chain where being a good salesperson is a very, very complex problem. You need to know the basics of lead generation and qualification and communications, proposal writing. You need to know the products. You need to know the pricing. You need to know the competition. You need to know how our systems work, how to use Salesforce, how to get a price approved, where to go for help, blah, blah, blah. It's very complicated. If you try to do it in a course, nobody will ever finish the course, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it will be too boring. But if you think about it as an academy of developmental opportunities around sales, led by the sales leaders, not HR, not by l and with l and facilitating it, and including formal learning, micro-learning developmental assignments, projects, mentors, experts, public speakers, outside consultants, academics. That's where the best learning will happen. And all these digital tools we have in l the learning experience platforms, the micro tools, all the development tools, they all can be used along those lines. But just throwing them out there and saying, here's our new self-directed learning environment. Go learn everything you need to know about sales people won't use it. They don't have time. They won't find it. They don't know, you know where to go with it. So the most successful companies are building these. I like the word academy a lot. I mean, I chose it for our thing right. because it's more than just courses. It's a bigger idea. It's a place you go to learn things because sometimes you do have to leave the work environment to immerse yourself in the topic and then come back with a better perspective. And not every company will have the same academies. I just got off the phone. I mean, one of the companies I talked to has a massive academy of customer service. It's a big cable company because they have all these cable boxes and telecommunication systems. Another company I just talked to has a massive academy around supply chain because so much of their business is around supply chain and moving parts and around the world to different customers. I just finished a conversation. We're going to do a project with a company that's building a, an academy for... Advanced Manufacturing, because they're a global, they're actually a very, very large manufacturing distribution company in South Africa. And I can help them build all sorts of courses, but it's bigger than that. And that allows you as an HR professional to think about the problem in a holistic way and get a business leader to sponsor it with you. So like I call myself the dean of our academy because I'm sort of worried about all of it but I'm not building all of it. I mean, I'm working with some other guys to build it. I think you need the same thing. We need a dean and we need a CEO or a leader or a series of leaders that wanna be a part of it. And people love that idea of having a place to go. I think an academy is a place. It's a place to go where it's safe and powerful to learn. It might be a physical place, a virtual place, but it's a whole you know series of things. So that's one paradigm that I think is starting to pick up speed.
0: You know, we're talking about how jobs are changing, you know, the increased importance of emotional and relational skills and how companies are investing more in academies, upskilling, reskilling. Do you think that changes traditional education and how companies recruit or place the importance of recruiting from, say, great universities versus saying, hey, we can take somebody with great capabilities and, you know, we have a great academy and we don't worry about that?
1: Maybe a little bit slowly it's happening. You know, there are a lot of companies, especially since the job market is so tight in some areas, a lot of companies are changing their recruiting standards and eliminating college degree as a criteria, taking college degrees off the interview. It's sort of like if you really want to have an unbiased interview schedule, don't show the name, age. College degree. Right. Yeah, we're talking about removing bias. <laughs> Just have this human being walk in your office and talk to them. Yeah. Because all of that introduces bias. And have them stand behind a barrier with a voice. Yeah, I right. mean, I think the reason universities still are a very big part of recruiting is that the universities are, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell who first said this, universities are like a modeling school. The modeling school doesn't make you beautiful, but it selects beautiful people universities don't make you smart, but they select people right. high end that are, that are academically in nature.
0: They do the job for you. If you recruit somebody who went to Harvard, you know that yes, they're...
1: Exactly. It's a selection mechanism. Right. So I think there's always going to be a lot of that. But there's a lot of companies pushing well beyond that because they just can't find enough people in those pools. Yeah. Let's get
0: back into uh, the world of work. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, the keys to success of being a manager. Is, uh, you talk about learning all the time, reading, studying, that sort of thing. A lot of people would tell you, I don't have time for any of that. I have so much going on. And when I saw you speak in Dallas, you talked about this idea of time, famine, and productivity
1: not keeping up with GDP. You know, I I hate to say it, that's baloney. (laughs) I mean, I'm just as busy as everybody else. Right. And, And here you are. Yeah. And I'm talking to you and I read books and I spend time going to conferences and listening to other people. And it makes me better at my job. And it actually saves me time. I can tell. I mean, I've been doing the same thing long enough that I can tell when I've slipped into a low productivity zone of the day. I'm not writing well. My thoughts aren't clear. uh, I'm not ready to do the deal or write the proposal or whatever it is that I'm supposed to do. And I just feel like I'm not being productive. And so it's important for me to have a skill of saying, okay, it's time for me to go for a walk. It's time for me to go to the gym. It's time for me to go talk to my kids, read a book, or just leave and come back later. And everybody has to have that innate ability. In fact, it's the number two skill that came out of the IBM study on advanced skills is learning how to manage your own time to make yourself more effective at work. And that doesn't mean taking a time management course that shows you how to fill out a little workbook with your checklist. It means understanding what makes you productive and what makes you unproductive and being brave enough to not do the unproductive things. And maybe that means you skip some meetings, you delete some emails, you don't respond to every Slack message when it comes in because you have other things that are more important and you read a book and you listen to a podcast or you go to a course and you come back five times more productive yeah. and you have to get, develop that sense of confidence. I've developed it over many years. I used to hate, I mean, I'll tell you something, Andy, in my case, I used to hate getting on a plane and going to conferences because I always thought about how much time I was wasting. Mm. And you know, I could be home, I could be writing an article, I could be doing interviews. Well, every time I did it, I would say, wow, that was really worth it. I met some people, I learned some things, I saw some things that I never would have seen at home. But I've learned, you know. so now when I get on the plane, as much as I don't like it, I'm thinking, okay, this is just a patent, I'm just doing it. And I think everybody has those similar opportunities to learn in your company that you just have to force yourself to do, you have to learn. And if your boss is not letting you do that, then you gotta find a new boss. Because that's, to me, not good management.
0: <laughs> yeah, I agree with you 100%. This is something I harp on all the time and everybody has the same amount of time. And uh, I personally deal with this by hyper-focusing on you know, how and where I'm spending my time. I get up early every morning and spend time reading every morning at the gym mm-hmm. you know, between five and seven days a week. And I find that makes me a lot more productive. Some of it is time management. And yet, you know, what I was alluding to in the question is that you mentioned in the talk I saw in Dallas that Productivity is not keeping up with GDP, despite people working more. So, is the biggest problem just that people are, and that we know there's tons of distractions.
1: Yeah, the productivity date is a big, big, big issue. It's way bigger than me. I mean, economists haven't figured it out. There's a whole bunch of reasons. Commute times are longer. The average American spends an extra 24 minutes a day commuting than they did a year ago. A year ago, that's ridiculous. Wow. So, you know, that's infrastructure, traffic, cities. We get too many emails, too many messages, too many distractions. I mean, you can't just turn it off. Thank you, social media companies, for giving us all these messages. Now we have to figure out what to do with them all. Right. And they've managed to figure out how to addict us to them. And then managers have to be really good at telling people what not to do. It's hard. I think one of the most valuable things a leader can do is tell people where not to spend their time. To be able to go to somebody and say, I don't want you to work on this. It's not worth your time. Let's skip it. It's fine with me. Let's focus on this. That is a huge relief to somebody to hear that. Um, and leaders have to be able to do that. And that's that's one of the new roles of leaders is focus. And then I think organizations, and this is what this, the employee experience programs are all about all over the world, organizations have to figure out how to reduce noise and clutter and simplify processes and get rid of old systems and all that. And that's a lot of work going on.
0: Yeah. There's a lot to be done, but right. Companies are contributing to it. Obviously, social media, all the different forms of communication. Uh, there's so many different things. So you, you mentioned you know, simplifying systems and things like that. Let's move to technology now, because we have a lot of technology available to help us with learning. And in theory... It makes things better and easier. And yet, I've heard you say the average L&D department has 23 technologies for learning, which means it's confusing, I would assume, if not really frustrating for a lot of people. So what's going on there? How do companies deal with that? And and how do they solve this?
1: I've been thinking about this because I have to write this piece. This idea of being a full stack professional, you can't really be a good L&D professional if you don't understand the tools. You're going to have to dive in and get to know what these things do. Not all of them, but at least a few of them, because you're going to have to select something. You can't just buy an LMS and assume it has every feature in it. It doesn't work that way anymore. So from the standpoint of an L&D person, either you, the person listening to this podcast, or somebody in your organization really should be the learning architect. And there's a job title called Learning Architect of people that know all these different tools you can hire consultants, you can hire people like me. And there's a lot of people like me out there that keep up on this. And then you get to know the systems as you use them and they are, none of them are perfect and some of them are good at this and that. And then you have to work with the vendors and push the vendors to give you the features that you want if they don't have them and you'll make some mistakes and some of the tools will drift off and two or three years later, you'll realize they're no good anymore. And then other ones will be flourishing into great companies. And that's just the way it is. A lot of times, the reason people go to conferences is just to see what tools other people have bought and how well they work. And I think that's a very valid way to do it. Like I said, you can talk to analysts, you can go to conferences. That's the reason the conferences are so filled with companies and people. There's just a lot of options. Uh, It's like buying a car. I mean, you could go down and just buy a car and drive it home and probably be happy with it, but right. you're probably a little better off shopping around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, looking what the options are. And you still want to touch it and feel it and, and talk to somebody about it. Yeah, and then you might want to ride it, take it for a test drive.
0: <laughs> well, and I think, uh, you know, I'm very invested and passionate about this idea of conferences yeah. and bringing people together because I'm, I'm creating this one that you're speaking at in January. And it's interesting because I think in this increasingly digital age, we're more connected to people everywhere. And yet, I think people mm-hmm. are hum- more hungry than ever for that real personal connection. And I have had executives tell me when they go to conferences, that's where they go check out what vendors are available because they can't take all the calls and cold emails. It's just way too much clutter. Right. So they'll inv- you know, go to a conference where they can talk face-to-face to people and say, okay, oh, I
1: remember you. Or you talk to a peer in your industry that's doing something like you are and they have, oh, I really love NovoEd or I really love Degreed or I really love EdCast or I really love this. Right. Yeah. And then they're like, okay, great. Let's talk to them. And that's, that's good too, because now you have a reference.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you, you've talked to someone else who's using it besides just the salesperson. Yeah. Let's finish with this idea of learning in the flow of work, which I know you've talked a lot about over the last year or so. And, and heard you, I've heard you even say learning in the flow of life. <laughs> Where are you on that now? And, and for those that are, haven't heard you talk about, what does it mean?
1: You know, it was an idea that came to me a couple of years ago when I was looking at all the technology providers. And I did a lot of work on it and sort of built out the idea and talked to a lot of vendors, it's clearly happening now. All of the learning tools and content systems are developing interfaces into Slack, Salesforce, Microsoft Teams, Workplace, You know all of the systems of productivity, including email, Office. And by the way, Microsoft's going to do this too. And so if the vendors don't do it, they're going to get crushed because the Microsoft people have figured this out that when you're writing an email, you know, just like it corrects your typing, there's no reason why it wouldn't say, by the way, here's a video on that topic, if you don't know what it is. So that's all happening, the technology's happening. As far as how l departments use it, that's a little bit trickier, because it's still very new. And what I think is important is to put together an architecture like I talked about in that presentation, of macro and micro learning working together so that you have well-defined, prescribed, formal learning at different points in your job and then micro learning to supplement that. And we don't let people sort of throw all this micro learning out there and assume that it's all gonna work. I'm now becoming a little less excited about LXPs because I've talked to quite a few companies that have bought LXPs, bought content libraries, stuck them out there and found out that they aren't being used because there's just too much content. So I think learning on in the flow of work will get better and better and better over time. But I think you still have to architect it and build it into a series of programs or academies that solve a problem. And clearly the idea took off because everybody's talking about it now and using the phrase in different ways. And it makes sense to me because The paradigm of the world today is we're living in a stream. We're living in a stream of content, a stream of emails, a stream of meetings, a stream of information. And so learning can't be a big box, like sort of like a brick. It's got to go into the stream. Right. (laughs) It's got to fit in with everything else. Yeah.
0: And learn in the flow of work. Got it. Josh, are there any other trends that you're really excited about right now that we haven't talked about today?
1: I think the only thing I'll touch on just really quick is we're in a world in HR and learning where we don't know everything, so we need more data. And I don't like the word people analytics because people analytics tends to connote this sort of PhD science project group. I think it's just doing a really good job of instrumenting our companies and collecting data, whether it be ratings up, down, five-star ratings, What did you like? What did you not like? Net promoter score. So we know when we launch into something, what are the problems people are trying to address? And are we doing the right job of solving them for this particular group of people in the company? Because every group of people in the company has a slightly different set of problems. So getting data, looking at data, and making more intelligent decisions how to build all these programs. And then the basics, which is get out of your seat Get out of your office and go spend time in the business and see what's going on. Spend a day there. Do a design session with the people you're trying to train. Meet with the managers. Follow them around. You'll develop way more learning, you know, better learning by doing that than diddling around with the LMS or the LXP to try and make it look a little better. Yeah. They'll tell you what their problems are and you'll see it. So that goes back to performance consulting, which is not a new topic.
0: Yeah, actually looking for information to inform the decisions you make instead of making assumptions. You are giving the opening keynote at the Talent Development Think Tank conference yep. that uh, I'm hosting with my friend Bennett Phillips on January 22nd, 23rd in uh, Santa Rosa, right down the street from you in the Bay Area. Yep. For those who are attending or people thinking about buying a ticket, what can they expect from that, that opening talk?
1: From me? From you, Yeah. Well, given that it's like six weeks away, it'll be something I haven't even thought about yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I think what I'm going to try to do. I need to think about. It. I'll try to paint the big picture of where I think talent development is going in 2020. I'll talk about the Capability Academy. I'll talk about talent marketplaces. I'll talk about the role of L and D. I'll give you guys some new data on. The workforce and some of the drivers of, of employee needs. I'll try to do a little bit of talking about the science of learning as much as I can and try to pull together what's going on in the tech space. So I'll, it'll be a pretty big refresh of what I did at LinkedIn.
0: I love that. And I'm excited about your opening talk there at the Think Tank. And what's really cool is that you're going to be talking about what's going on in L&D and what, what's going to be happening in 2020. And then after your talk, later that day, we're going to be doing some design thinking to really define the future of talent development and let people really get involved, share their ideas, brainstorm some things and come up with some things that they can take back with them to their jobs, to their companies. Uh, We want this to be really useful, impactful for people to get a great ROI on their investment in in coming to the Think Tank. Josh, this has been so awesome. Really great to have you on. For anybody listening who doesn't follow you or, or wants to follow you or get in touch with you, where's the best place for them to do that?
1: You can go to LinkedIn. I'm all over LinkedIn. My website is joshberson.com, one word. And then the Bursonacademy.com has all of our Burson Academy content and all sorts of cool stuff in it. So any of those places.
0: Awesome. We'll put links to all of those in the show notes. Josh, thank you so much for spending time with me today and uh, all of our listeners and talking about everything that you shared, all of your experience and wisdom. I really appreciate it. And uh, hope you have an awesome week. Thank you, Andy. Well, there you have it. That is my interview with Josh Burson, who again will be giving the opening keynote at the Talent Development Think Tank conference, which is coming up again on January 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California, just a few weeks away. We would love to have you if you haven't gotten your tickets yet, let, Yet, head on over to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and get your tickets or get on the wait list for next year if you can't make it this year but this is going to be an exciting, fantastic event, and uh, it's one you don't want to miss. So head on over to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com. We'll see you there. If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. slash community and use code hot seat for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know, and we'll see you there. Thanks for listening to the talent development hot seat. If you got value out of this show, please subscribe, leave a review and share with your colleagues and friends. We want to spread the word and add as much value to the talent development community as possible. And we need your help. As always, you can find more information and connect with me at talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Take care.